to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, in just a moment, we're going to read two verses from this chapter, verses 37 and 38. And I want to talk to you tonight about first steps, because we have been blessed to witness scriptural baptism this evening. I want to talk to you about why it is we baptize and what baptism is all about. I go back and think through experiences in my life and uh, some of the most interesting experiences I've had have revolved around baptism. I shared the story with some of the men this morning that I was actually baptized by a Methodist. Y'all won't throw me out for that, will you? We love our Methodist brothers and sisters, but uh, it's an interesting story. When I was a young pastor at uh, the Bethany Baptist Church out in East Pulaski County. It was my first pastorate. There was another young pastor that came to that part of the county. He was a Methodist and pastored the Methodist Church there in the Shopville area of East Pulaski County. And so he and I just hit it off and we worked together as we could and enjoyed uh, fellowship. But I'll never forget one day when he called me And I could tell from the outset that he was a little bit nervous on the phone. And I asked him how I could help him. He said, well, I have to baptize two young people Sunday morning, and I don't know how to do it. And I said, what do you mean you don't know how to do it? He said, well, you've got to remember I'm Methodist, and I grew up in the sprinkling tradition of baptism, and that's all I've ever experienced. That was the way that uh, my church did me, and that's what I've done. And this particular Methodist church practices baptism by immersion, and I don't have a clue. So I called my friend who managed the hotel, one of the hotels in Somerset at the time, had an indoor pool, it was wintertime, and I said, uh, would it be okay if I came and brought my friend and borrowed the pool there for about 30 minutes this afternoon? And so he allowed us to do so. And so there at what was the best Western at that time, I taught a Methodist how to baptize scripturally and properly. And here was his test. He had to baptize me five times to make sure that he had the technique down. So he learned that night to baptize, or that afternoon rather, to baptize. And I called him. That Sunday afternoon, he promised me everything went well with his baptisms there at the Methodist Church in Shopville. Uh, They tell a story way over in the mountains of East Kentucky. I learned this story when I was pastor of the First Baptist Church in Hazard. And it's a story of uh, how they had a baptism in one of the mountain churches, or baptistry rather, down underneath the pulpit. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But some of the churches over there have that. And so they'll move the pulpit out of the way, and there's a platform built over the opening. And down under that, typically it's a metal tank, and they'll fill it with water. And that's how they do their baptisms in some of those mountain churches. Well, here's the way the story goes. Uh, They had several. They had a big revival, and a lot of people needed baptism. And... The first person to be baptized that night was an elderly gentleman um, who 
had accepted the Lord Jesus as his Savior, but what they would do is on the sides of the stage, they would hang up curtains for dressing rooms. So the older man had his baptism, and following him was a middle-aged lady that was a little bit nervous about going down in the water. Sometimes you have ladies and men, for that matter, like that, and they get a little uh, anxious about baptism. And so the older man had been baptized. He was in one of the makeshift uh, curtained-off changing areas. And about the time the pastor put the lady down under the water, she got really nervous and said, Oh, my Lord, and flailed her hands, grabbed that curtain and pulled it down with her on the way down. And there he stood. And the story goes, he just said, Oh, my Lord, and jumped in the tank with them. They tell that in the mountains of East Kentucky for a true story. I've never been able to verify it, but they say it's true. So we go to a lot of extremes to properly baptize. And we're going to talk about that this evening and why we do it and what the Bible has to say about baptism. This is one of those great passages of Scripture that comes at a zenith in the work and activity of the Lord on earth because the church had just come to life. And a lot of people see the coming of the church at different times and moments in the Lord's ministry, but I see the church actually being born on Pentecost. You know what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. God the Holy Spirit has come down. You know, Jesus was saved, excuse me, Jesus was crucified so that we could be saved. He was placed in his tomb three days later, comes out of his entombment 40 days upon the earth, and he instructed his followers, the Christians, to stay after they had come back to Jerusalem, to stay there and to be in one accord to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing that happens. God the Holy Spirit comes down and He indwells the hearts and lives of believers there in Jerusalem. And it happens at Pentecost. Now Pentecost is a celebration. It's one of the high holy celebrations in the life of the Jews. And there were Jewish people from all over the known world who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and being filled with God the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter goes out and he preaches this great Pentecostal message. Now, I love to think about Peter going out and preaching in a very public way there in Jerusalem because of the obvious change that had happened in his life. Now I want you to think about it. Just a month and a few days before this, Simon Peter, predicted by Jesus, was denying that he ever knew the Lord's name. You know, Jesus told him in the upper room that that would happen. He told him before the cock crowed, he would deny him, the Lord, three times. And of course, 
that came into ringing reality that night that Jesus was arrested and he was about to go through his trials. And so here is Simon Peter, a man who completely denies his association with the Lord, coming out and standing in the middle of a great group of people at Pentecost and preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had been changed, right? Uh, You know, there's something about seeing a man that you knew to be graveyard dead three days earlier, alive and living forevermore. And then it wouldn't be long beyond that where up on the shores of Galilee again, Jesus would completely restore Peter once for each time that he had denied knowing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had an amazing opportunity to tell the Lord that he loved him. But when he was filled with God the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches this amazing message at Pentecost, and many, many people get saved, and they're baptized. And I want you to notice with me what the text says in verses 37 and 38 of Acts chapter 2. The Bible says, again in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So they've heard Peter's message and they're asking the question, What do we do with this, Peter? What do we do about the things that you've said in your sermon? And then notice verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for our experiences today. And Father, thank you for the baptisms that we've celebrated this evening with Isaiah and Connor. And Father, I just pray that we'd take this tonight and and use it as an opportunity, Father, to celebrate with them, yes, but also be reminded of the importance of baptism and why we do what we do. Lord, would you bless us tonight as we seek to understand your word. We pray and we ask it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and amen. So in the church's history, we've had so many great evangelists that God has used in in a large-scale way in mass evangelism campaigns. I think some of the most recognized names are names like Dwight L. Moody, the great Chicago pastor and evangelist. We've talked some on Sundays past about Billy Sunday, who was the Major League Baseball player that was a rascal of a person, but God radically changed his life and called him into a preaching ministry, and he preached these great large-scale crusades all over America. We think about a West Kentuckian by the name of Mordecai Ham that preached great crusades and revivals. As a matter of fact, he was preaching in Charlotte, North Carolina, the day that the greatest of all 
recent evangelists came to know Jesus. Billy Graham was saved under his preaching. And you know, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples that they would do even greater works than he would do. And it's hard for us to understand until you think about the technology and the way we have to move about and to travel that Jesus didn't have in his day, in his age. And so when we've watched men like Billy Graham preach the gospel in these large arenas and football stadiums and not only preach to the people in those locations, but it be on television and people all over the world hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said that those who followed after him would do even greater work than he had done. But I say all that simply to say this, the first great large-scale mass evangelism event was on Pentecost in 33 AD. And again, the evangelist is none other than the apostle Peter. So again, God the Holy Spirit has come down. Peter is filled with the Spirit. And so he goes out probably on the southern steps of the temple there in Jerusalem, preaches with power, and Scripture tells us that 3,000 people were saved. Now, an amazing thing that really is. 3,000 people hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, are saved, and are baptized. I'm thankful to have been in some large baptism services. I think probably the largest I was ever involved in was down in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, one afternoon when we baptized 47. But can you imagine being in a baptism service when 3,000 people are saved? i tell you what I'd love to do. I'd love to just pick you up right now and take you to the southern steps of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. They're there to this day and, and show you all the ritual baths, the ceremony, uh, ceremonial baths that the ancient Jews would use as they would prepare themselves to go up to the temple for one of their times of sacrifice and worship And if you were to be there and see all of that and just all these little baptistries, almost like what we have here, that just dominate that rocky outcropping there, you would see how it was possible that 3,000 people would hear the gospel and they would be baptized. But I want you to see that leading up to the point of decision, leading up to the moment when these 3,000 people would respond and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, those who heard Peter's sermon, they asked him a very critical question. And I pointed it out to you as we read the text. They asked Peter and the other apostles that were their brothers, what shall we do? And I'm glad they asked that question because as it's recorded for us in Acts 2, Verse 38, Peter's response clears up a lot 
of questions regarding salvation, a lot of misunderstandings about baptism, and a lot of misperceptions about the coming of the Holy Spirit. What he does here in just a very simple statement is he points out the first three steps, the first steps in our walk of faith. And I want you to notice with me that the very first step, and we saw it beautifully displayed here tonight, when it was pointed out that these young men had some time ago received Jesus Christ as Savior, and they understood that that was the moment of their salvation. But tonight, following the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, so we've seen it, but that's exactly what Peter points out here. The first step in following Jesus is to repent of your sins. I want you to notice Peter's clarity here. The first thing one does in response to what we call conviction is to repent. Now, how many of you know what conviction is tonight? If you followed the Lord Jesus Christ for a while, it's maybe been a while since you've felt that conviction. But I remember when I was under conviction, needing to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Do you remember that? I remember being a 10-year-old boy, and I was beginning to truly understand that I was a sinner. You know, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. I understood my place in all. I knew that I was a sinner. And then, of course, Romans 6.23 says what? That the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. So I began to understand that I was a sinner, and because of my sins, I was lost. And the wages of my sins would be death and eternal separation from the Lord. And so I began to get restless with that. I began to feel it. And the gravity of my lostness under the watch of God was a reality in my life. And so that's what we call conviction. Uh, Being convinced of our sins and understanding that without the saving touch of the Lord, we would go to hell and we would not be saved. And so the first response to conviction is always... Repentance, and that's why Peter puts it just the way he does in verse 38. He looks at them and he says to them, number one, repent. He's echoing what the Lord Jesus had already taught. You know, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus had something powerful to say about repentance. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise repent. Perish. So the first step in following Jesus is that step of repentance. Someone may ask, what is repentance? What does it truly mean to repent? Well, the Greek term there in the New Testament is metanoia, and it means a changing of your mind 
that results in a changing of your ways. In other words, you change your mind about something, and the result of that is that you turn around and you start walking a new direction. And so that's what Jesus says. You need to change your mind about your sin, and you need to turn from it, and in turning from it, you need to turn to God and begin to walk in a new direction. Now, listen, Amy and I have this little deal that when I begin to repeat myself, she does this. In other words, honey, that's the second time you've told this story. And you know what I do? I ignore her. (laughs) But then when she starts to do this and this, you know, then I take notice of what she's trying to say. But I'm going to repeat myself here because it's the best illustration of repentance that, that I've frankly ever heard. And it goes back to Billy Sunday. I shared with you a few weeks ago how Billy Sunday, that great athletic preacher of the gospel, former baseball player, would illustrate repentance. He would preach on repentance and then he would say, I'm going to show you what it is. And he would start walking down one direction of the stage And he would say, watch this, I'm going to repent. And Billy Sunday would stop in his walk and he would jump straight up in the air. And with his athleticism, he had the ability to shift his body and turn around, do a 180, set his feet back down on the stage, headed the other direction, and start walking the other direction across the stage. Now those of you that weren't here that Sunday, I told you about that. You can tell... Uh, you can ask the others and they can tell you that I illustrated it that Sunday and, and I won't do that again tonight. Forgive me, Lord, I just told one. But that's how Sunday would do it. He'd jump up in the air, spin around, land back on the stage, heading back the other direction. That's what repentance truly is. And let me tell you, it's not just a decision that we make with our own minds, but it's something we're empowered to do when God the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. You know, there are things about our old way of living that even on our best days, sometimes we can't do anything about it. But listen to me, when God the Holy Spirit gets involved in a heart and in a life, It's an amazing thing how that person is radically changed. I knew one preacher years ago that used to say, when you know Jesus, K-N-O-W, when you know Jesus, you know change. But when you don't know Jesus, you do not know change. And So he would say, to know Jesus is to know change, but where there's no N-O Jesus, there's no N-O change. So that's what repentance is all about. God the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart and your life. He begins to convict you of your sin and under conviction as God the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation. There comes a moment in your life when you pray for the Lord to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Listen to me closely tonight. You cannot save yourself. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. 
You can't give enough. You can't serve enough. There is nothing in and of yourself that you can do to save yourself. But I'm telling you, when you stop the way you're going and you plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, God does for you what you can't do. He saves your soul. So it begins with repentance. The second step, the first step is is repentance, but the second step is demonstrating your repentance like we saw tonight through baptism. It's your repentance and it's the work of God the Holy Spirit that saves you. But when you follow Jesus in baptism, my friend, that is your first official step of discipleship as you're showing the watching world that you no longer belong to Satan and you no longer belong to yourself, but you belong to Jesus. And I want you to see that baptism always follows repentance and belief. I've said it like this so many times, but it's good for us to recall it. We are not baptized to be saved, but we're baptized because we are saved. We're not baptized to be saved. We're baptized because we are saved. You see... If we were baptized to get saved, then my friend, that would just be a work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes that very clear that we are not saved by works. And I'm so thankful for that because my works get shallow sometimes. My works never saved me to begin with And in my journey with the Lord, my works do not keep me saved. So we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. And that's not of our own, the Bible says, but it's the gift of God so that no one could boast. You see, if it was my work, whether it was baptism or my offering or any other type of work, if it was about me and about what I could do, then I could boast. But I'm here before you tonight to tell you that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have no work that would get me saved. And I certainly have no work that would keep me saved. It's all about the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the act of baptism that saves It's the grace of God that saves. As we place our faith in Jesus, repenting of our sins. And so many people, and listen, I'm not angry about this. Don't misunderstand me tonight. But a lot of our brothers and sisters don't truly grasp the meaning of this verse. Some of them think that it teaches what we call baptismal regeneration. In other words, you are regenerated. You're made into a new person when you go down into that water grave of baptism. You go down and you're the old man. You come back and you're the new man. Well, it certainly represents that, but it's not the act of baptism that does that in your heart and life. Now, 
Let me tell you something about studying the Bible. You cannot understand a passage of Scripture without thinking about its context. And so we need to remember what is the context of this chapter and verse 38 when Peter says to repent and then be baptized, everyone, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of of sin. Again, it's Pentecost. God the Holy Spirit has come down. Peter is preaching that great evangelistic sermon, and these 3,000 people get saved. And, and I want you to understand when you read the conversion texts all through the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that it's not baptism that saves you, but it's the power and the work that's brought through the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you. So I want you to see what Peter preaches in verse 21 of Acts chapter 2. Now this is the middle of his sermon here. I mean, Peter's getting with it here. And he's telling the people exactly what God the Holy Spirit wanted him to say. And in verse 21, as it's recorded for us, he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call... On the name of the Lord shall be what, churched? Saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's one of those great whosoever verses in Scripture. I don't know about you, but a poor old country boy like me, I'm awfully glad that I fit into whosoever. I'm glad. I'll go back to what I told you a moment ago. When I was 10 years old, sitting on the couch of our home on a Sunday morning, my dad had already gone on to the church building. My mother and my sister were getting ready to go, and there I was watching something on the television, waiting on mom and sis to come out so we could go to church, and I was under conviction. And that Sunday morning in 1980... I bowed my head and I cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, Lord Jesus, as best I know how to say it, would you please save me? I was a whosoever who called upon the name of the Lord. Now, I was baptized some weeks after that. Not long after that, but a few weeks after that. But may I tell you, the pain that was involved in my conviction... Those restless nights as a 10-year-old boy when I wondered if I didn't wake up to see the morning light of a new day, would I be with the Lord or would I be with the devil? All of that, I'm telling you tonight, rolled away that Sunday morning when I cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ and a 10-year-old boy got saved. Didn't have to wait on my baptism. Jesus Christ saved me that morning because I was a whosoever that called upon the name of the Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall call upon Him, shall believe in Him, will not perish but have everlasting life. Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 13, 
that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here Peter preaches it in that Pentecostal sermon. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't you just imagine tonight that if the work of baptism was part of the equation that helps someone move from death to life, don't you just imagine that that's exactly what Peter would have preached. I think Peter would have preached. It shall come to pass that whosoever calls on Jesus and then gets into the baptismal waters as quickly as he or she can get there, it's that person that'll be saved. But that's not what Peter preaches. And listen to me tonight, it's not what Jesus said to the thief on the cross either, is it? Love the narrative of the thief on the cross who simply looks to Jesus. And there's Jesus hanging nude, beat to an inch of his life, with blood pouring out from every inch of his body stapled to a cross, never looked less like a king than he did on Calvary, but that thief on the cross, just in simple believing faith. I'm telling you tonight, the prayer of the thief on the cross may be the the most wonderful, the most unusual, Example of raw faith that you'll find anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Jesus hanging, dying. The thief on the cross looks to him and says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says what? I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. May I just tell you that's been a source of great comfort to my life. You lose somebody close to you and it'll be a source of great comfort to you. Isn't it a blessing that you can stand at the graveside of a loved one and you know the spiritual reality for them is that they are not lying in the grave. But Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, well, if you can come down from this cross and do a few works, maybe get down to the Jordan and get baptized, maybe sing a few songs, maybe give an offering or two, come back to me and then we'll consider it. No, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So Peter preaches it. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's what you need to understand. The Greek word gar that's translated for also can be understood to mean because of. And in the context, again, where Peter has already said in verse 21, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That sheds light on what he's saying in verse 38. It's parenthetical. 
he's asked that question, what shall we do? And the answer is repent. Turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, repent, and as a result of that, then be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus in response to, because of the fact that your sin problem has been resolved. Because of. In other words, we're baptized because of our repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. So what's biblical baptism? Well, it's a transliterated word. There was no such word in the English language as baptism before 1611 when they translated the King James Bible. The Greek word baptizo means to take one thing and put it down into something else. It means to immerse. It means to take a person and put them down into the water grave of baptism. That's why I could help my Methodist friend get it right. Because it's what the Bible says. Baptizo, it cannot be translated any other way. It means to immerse. So the translators took the word baptizo and they didn't really translate it, but they transliterated it and give us this word baptism, but it has to mean to immerse, to plunge. And so when we think about baptism, we think about the proper mode, which is immersion in water. We talk about the proper member, which is a believer, one who has placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus. And we talk about the proper meaning. In other words, it's a symbolic ordinance. It's not the act of baptism that connects somebody to Christ. It's not the act of baptism that makes someone saved. But when we do what we just did a few moments ago, praise the Lord, here are two young men who placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what they just represented is simply this. I died to myself. And the dead man or the dead lady goes down into the water grave of baptism. And what a beautiful picture when they're brought back up that symbolizes just like I spiritually was buried with Jesus. Here I am, resurrected to walk in the newness of life. It's kind of like this thing here, if I can get it off my finger. Can you see that? What is that? It was on the ring finger of my left hand. It's my wedding ring. And Miss Amy gave it to me at the Central Baptist Church in Warner Robins, Georgia, back several years ago. But you know what? I don't always wear it. I usually wear it. But if I'm gone, for instance, when I was in Israel a couple weeks ago, 
I didn't take it with me. I've got one of those little rubber things that I take because I'm afraid of losing this somewhere. And I'm the type of person that when I get in at night, the first thing I do is empty my pockets and I take off my ring and put it in its place. And boy, I'd hate to lose this ring that she gave me. So the point is this. Whether I have it on the ring finger of my left hand or not, the truth of the matter is, I'm married to Amy Elizabeth Dodson. She's my wife. It's true. Whether I wear it or not, I'm still married to Amy. But I like to wear my ring because when I put it on, everybody can see it. And everybody can know that I have identified myself with one woman. And I intend to be her husband until the day that either she or I goes on to be with the Lord. That is my promise that I made to her. But this ring does not make me her husband. It symbolizes the inward reality that is now ours because of the pledge we made to one another. And my friend, that's what your baptism does for you. Now think about it like this. What if I had stood there that day on the platform of the Central Baptist Church in Warner Robins, Georgia, and Amy and I had made our promises, but it came time for the exchange of our vows. And my father, who did our wedding, handed me that ring that she had purchased for me. What if I had just stopped? and called a timeout in our wedding and said something like this, Amy, I love you and I do want to be your husband, but I don't want anybody to know about it. I choose not to take that ring. Well, you don't know my bride. Some of you know her a little bit. You don't know her well, but I can promise you this. That would not have gone over. The rest of the plans would have been done. You hear people talk about, I'm done with this, I'm done with that. Oh, Amy would have been done with Alan that day, for sure. I wouldn't have done that, because you know what? I love her with everything that's in me. She's God's gift to me. And I don't care for anybody to know that she's my wife. I want people to know that. But may I say to you, I'm talking about a Savior who reached down to a little boy that didn't have any hope. In the chains of sin, I was a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus reached down for me. He picked me up. And He saved my soul. I want you to hear me tonight. I want the world to know that He's my Savior. I want the world to know that Jesus 
is everything to me. And so, very proudly, a few weeks after I had made my profession of faith, like these young men did tonight, I went down into the water grave of baptism because I wanted to be identified with Jesus. First steps of your journey with the Lord, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit. Notice what Peter says at the end of verse 38. You repent, you're baptized, and notice that because of the faith you placed in the Lord Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Aren't you thankful tonight, believer, that God the Holy Spirit resides within you? It's a reference here to the indwelling of the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, if you're saved... You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question is never for the believer, do I have the Holy Spirit? The question is often, how much am I allowing God, the Holy Spirit, control me? So that is the indwelling. While baptism is the outward expression of our relationship with Jesus The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the inward reality for one who has truly repented of his or her sins and received Jesus for salvation. It's a beautiful thing to have the Holy Spirit and to grow in Him and let Him produce His fruit in your life. Aren't you thankful? that you don't have to have darkness and the works of the flesh and the deeds of evil prevalent in your life, but you can have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Scripture says, against those things there is no law. First steps. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. If you're serious about that, follow Him in believer's baptism. Show the world that you're intending to be a faithful follower of Jesus and allow God the Holy Spirit to fill you up and grow His fruit in you. Would you stand with me tonight and bow your heads? I want to pray for you, and after I pray, in just a moment, we're going to sing together. Maybe you're here tonight, and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Tonight, I ask you to come. Come to Jesus. The Bible says if you'll come to Him, He will in no wise cast you out. Would you come to Jesus tonight? Maybe you're saying, I don't understand. I would love to sit down with you and take the Word of God and we'll go through whatever you need to know so that you can understand 
how to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Would you come to Him tonight? Maybe there's somebody here tonight and you've been saved, but you've never followed Him in baptism. That's an act of obedience, and it's what God wants you to do. It's what you're called to do. Would you come tonight and say, I want to be baptized? I tell you what, the water's up there. We'll do it tonight if you need to be baptized. Come, make that decision tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, I need to grow more in the Holy Spirit and allow Him to control me more fully. Would you come tonight? Let God have His way in your heart and in your life. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for our moments together. Thank You, Father, uh, for Isaiah and Connor who uh, have followed Jesus in baptism tonight. And Lord, perhaps there are others who need to make that same decision. And I pray, Lord, that You would lead them to do that if that is what they need to do. Lord, just let us be obedient to You in all manners, in all aspects, giving you full reign and full control in our lives. I pray we would do it as long as we live, that we would follow you in exact obedience. I pray and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.